So we're in Mark 14. I'm just going to read a, a section of this and then uh, speak to it. So uh, if you want to, you, you'll need a Bible, uh, not just for the reading, but for the talk as well. So if you can get to Mark 14 and hold it open. And uh, we're going to start in verse 44. <clears throat> Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The man seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus? that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And then we're going to jump to verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around them, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the cock crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our hearts. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, Lord. And we ask that you would speak to us tonight, that you would minister to us tonight. And we say we are expectant. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was 10 years old, um, dressed in my Sunday best, which was smarter than I am tonight, sitting on the front pew of Ballywillan Presbyterian Church on a Friday evening in October. My seven-year-old sister Jill was on my left, my mom was on my right, and the guts of my extended family were assorted behind me. My dad was being ordained as an elder. 
We were well through the service. The minister had read from 1 Timothy, you know, that bit about one wife and no drunkenness and being self-controlled and managing your family. And we bowed our heads to pray. As the prayer progressed, I became aware of a noise. My sister's foot was swinging back and forth, hitting the pew. Tap, 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 tap. Shh, I said. She didn't seem to notice. Tap, 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 tap. Jill, stop tapping. I hissed as loudly as I dared from my position at the front of the church. No response. Tap, 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 tap. Then came my crucial error. I attempted to tap Jill's leg with my foot. Unfortunately, my hard, shiny black heel connected perfectly with her shin. Ah! She squealed, you kicked me! And then she started to cry. Not a muffled, polite, I'm in church at the front, this is a public setting, but a fully committed sob. To this day, I don't know how much of the noise and the tears were put on and how much was real. The service was disrupted. I sensed all eyes on the front row. I attempted to quiet her down, to explain my actions, to protest my innocence, but all to no avail. After an agonizing wait, things settled down, the prayer wrapped up, the elders and ministers extended the right hand of fellowship, correct term there, guys, and the service closed with an invitation for refreshments in the hall. As my mom and my granny and a number of my aunties descended, I bolted for the bathroom and locked myself in a cubicle. What you need to know was that I was a very conscientious child, and I was absolutely devastated. I was the worst son, an embarrassment. There was no way out, no way back. I felt totally trapped, alone, like the inflatable boy with a pen. Yeah, I'd let my mom down, I'd let my dad down, I'd let my church down, I'd even let myself down. This is my earliest memory of real shame. Even now, the recollection of disappointment in myself, the thought of the moment of stepping back in front of everyone, of having to look my dad in the eye, gives me a knot in the stomach. Tonight is all about Mark 14 and what it can say to us about shame, the hold shame can have on us as followers of Jesus. You see, I, I love 
the Gospel of Mark. I love its brevity, moment after moment, squeezed into just 16 chapters. The, the punchiness of it points me to a real intentionality throughout. Every story has a purpose. Every phrase, every word is put there deliberately, not simply to tell us the facts of what happened, but to reveal deeper truths of God's character and our followership along the way. Mark, filled with the Holy Spirit, is a master storyteller. So I don't want to spoil the magic for you, but there is a simple framework to some of the best books and movies, and I'm going to let you in on it. Okay, act one is the setup. Who is our hero? What is their quest? And off they go. That's act one. It's that simple. Act two, all is lost. The hero has reached a seemingly impossible end. Obi-Wan is dead. Buzz and Woody are sliding towards the incinerator. E.T. has passed away. All is lost. Act two. But act three, triumph, a victory that is all the sweeter because we didn't just rush to the happy ending. We shared the pain of the problem. We felt connected to the challenge. We understood the stakes and how much it mattered. And I think Mark chapter 14 and chapter 15 form act two for the master storyteller, all is lost. I think they have been written to put us in the shoes of Peter and the other disciples, written in a way to help us connect with and relate to the disciples, their frailty, their weaknesses, and to experience through that more of the majesty of Jesus. These chapters have been written to help us grasp more of the significance of what happens next for Jesus, for his followers, for the church. So let's walk through Mark 14 as it unfolds, keeping our eyes on Peter and his colleagues. So you may open your Bibles and have a look. We start in a good place. Jesus and his disciples have been in Jerusalem for two or three days. He's been welcomed as a king. He's been preaching in the temple. He's been rebuking and confounding the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Remember, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he's been amazing the crowds. And now, as chapter 14 opens, we're in Bethany. Jesus is anointed with perfume on his head. This is as good as it gets. The stage is set. This is our hero. Nothing can stop him and his band of loyal followers onward. But then things start to slowly unravel. Watch Peter and follow this slow spiral down. Watch as he, with each move of location, the tension builds and the despair grows. So in verse 10, 
after the anointing, Judas sneaks off to betray Jesus. That's not part of the script, surely. Then, a couple of days later, we move to the upper room for the Last Supper. And there, Jesus predicts trouble. In verse 18, he says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And then in verse 25, he says this strange thing. He says, this is his last drink of wine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What is this? A a betrayal, a last drink, and we move onto the Mount of Olives. And Jesus tells them in verse 27, you will all fall away. Peter, bullish as ever, responds, even if all fall away, I will not. You will, says Jesus. And not only that, you will disown me tonight. It's not hard to imagine Peter's confident, maybe even prideful indignation. Never. Even if I have to die. But by now, Peter's head must be starting to spin. This this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like the way the story should go. This isn't the straight path to victory we were expecting. And so we move again to Gethsemane. Verse 32. And it tells us Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. What a thing to watch with your hero. He's pleading with God for this cup, this suffering to be taken away. And Peter and James and John are chosen to be with him at this hour of need. They're entrusted to keep watch. And they fall asleep. Imagine hearing Jesus waking you up, his voice disappointed, underlining your failure. Simon, verse 37. Simon. Notice it's Simon, not Peter, not the rock this time. No, no, no. Even in the name. Simon, he said to Peter, are are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? You had one job. And further down the spiral we go. And they fall asleep two more times. And Mark painstakingly lays this out step after step. And it's almost time to move. In verse 42, Jesus said, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Doubt he said it in that voice. And there's Judas with the armed mob. And John tells us that it is Peter who gets it wrong again. He cuts off a servant's ear. And Jesus, although he's speaking to the chief priest, said, 
Am I leading a rebellion? You can imagine Peter standing sheepishly with his sword dripping with blood, still waking from his sleep. It's not a good day at the office. And then we reach verse 50. Everyone deserted him and fled. All the confidence, all the bravado, all the hope is gone. And and as if to emphasize the point, Mark adds this unique and slightly odd detail in verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It is so odd. It is so specific. It was potentially probably Mark himself sharing his own sense of humiliation. What could be worse than being that guy, the guy who fled naked from the one you follow as he is led away to be tried and tortured? The nakedness jolts our minds to Genesis 3 and the vulnerable, humiliating moment of Adam and Eve caught in their sin. But before we can dwell there, we move again to the high priest's house. Jesus, our hero, is lied about, spat at, blindfolded, and beaten. And as if to heighten the contrast just that little bit more, Peter is making himself comfortable by the fire. And as he denies Jesus for the third time, calling down curses, don't do it by half measures, Peter, calling down curses and swearing with more emphasis, it seems, than whenever he said never, even I'll die before that, with more emphasis, he calls down curses and he swears, I don't know this man you're talking about. And the rooster crows and Peter is caught in the shameful state of desertion and denial, heightened by his boasting and bravado hours earlier, set to the backdrop of Jesus, his hope, his Messiah, his friend being convicted and castigated just meters away. The failure, the disappointment, the shame of it all comes crashing down and he breaks down and weeps. Mark uses chapter 14, I think, to carefully paint this raw, unvarnished picture. He really wants us to connect with this moment of despair and shame because we know what happens next. We know the future for Peter. We know the end of the story, but Mark doesn't want us to be in a rush to get there. Mark wants us to pause and take stock that the Pentecost preacher, the pioneer to Cornelius, the apostle whose shadow could heal, hit rock bottom too. Peter experienced the depth of failure and regret and stood at the door of shame. So let's pause there just for a moment. Let's pause in the place of shame. Let's first acknowledge 
where we need to our own shame. The shame of our sin that holds us back from intimacy with God for we fear that we're not worthy. Let's acknowledge the shame of our own indiscipline that restricts our confidence in following him wholeheartedly or the shame of our lukewarmness that dampens our passion. Let's acknowledge the shame of our failure that paralyzes us from action as we fear failing again or we fear what others might think as they watch us. Let's acknowledge our own shame. But secondly, let us acknowledge that shame is not of God. It is a trap of the devil because it does not take us forward. Shame is a lie which at its core says we cannot when the core of the gospel is because of Jesus, we can. We must not let shame shape or define us. Shame has no place here. Because despite how Peter or naked Mark might have felt, shame is not the story Jesus tells in Mark chapter 14. Jesus' story is life and hope and future woven through the words he spoke in this chapter. So I want to bring you back to a couple more things that are in Mark 14. You can imagine Peter sitting by the fire, weeping, thinking there is no way back for me. And that is what our shame tells us. My sin is too great. My fall is too far. There is no way back. But Jesus had a different story for Peter, for the disciples, for us. In verse 22, that very day, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That day, Jesus said, I am making a new way. Your shame has no place. Our shame says, I am the worst. I am alone. Jesus wants nothing to do with me, but Jesus has a different story. When we look at verse 27, Jesus said, you will all fall away, for it is written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus looked at these disciples who were about to abandon him in the most spectacular way and said, after you fail and let me down, I still want to be with you. In fact, I will go ahead of you. I will wait for you. I will welcome you. I am not ashamed of you. You're not the worst. You're not alone. He is not ashamed of you. Your shame has no place. And our shame says, this is all on me. I'm not strong enough. Even for Jesus, I'm a lost cause he isn't enough for me. But in this day, Jesus said, verse 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in his trial, in verse 61 and 62, he was silent until the high priest asked him if he was the Messiah. And Jesus said, 
I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus has a different story. We look to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings who made the ultimate sacrifice, who sits at the right hand of the Mighty One for whom all things are possible, who says you're not a lost cause. I am enough. Your shame has no place. A while ago, I was sitting with my kids and we were talking about faith and one of them said, I'm kind of a Christian. It's interesting for me. What, what do you mean you're kind of a Christian? Well, I believe, but I, I don't think about Jesus all the time and I don't do things like fasting. And my, my response was, well, if you want to say it that way, if you want to put it that way, then maybe we're all kind of a Christian. That's the point. That's part of the wonder of it all. We will always be unfinished, incomplete, imperfect, too weak, too selfish, too sinful, too distracted, but our response cannot be shame. We have to humbly, determinedly, and prayerfully get our eyes off ourselves. We must shift our eyes to Jesus and to his story. Rest in the fact that he is Savior. He is Lord. He has sacrificed perfectly. He has made a new covenant. He has made a new way. He can do all things. He is sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and he is coming on the clouds of heaven. And that is more than enough. That is more than enough to deal with whatever desertion or deceit or denial or even disrobing that is in our lives. Shame has no place. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. We thank you that in this downward spiral of events, actually, the hope you have, the life you have, burn brighter. And we pray against the hold shame can have on each of us, the paralyzing prison it can have, Lord. And we pray for your light to invade that in each of our lives and to help us to move closer to your presence, your purpose, your power. In Jesus' name, amen.